I remember vividly the moment in 1963 when my family first acquired a record of the Beatles. It was She Loves You. I was 18 and it was a blast of fresh air. What was particularly clever about the Beatles was they managed to appeal to the young without threatening the older generation while retaining the appearance of authenticity by adhering to their working class Liverpool roots. My whole family enjoyed them. The same year we acquired She Loves You, 1963, we watched the Beatles appearing in front of the Queen at the Royal Variety performance on TV. They were immaculately presented, joyful, witty and cheeky. Before their last number, John Lennon invited the audience in the cheaper seats to clap their hands, and the rest of you, if you'll just rattle your jewellery. Lennon smiled and ducked his head at this point, like a small boy cheeking his dad and avoiding a smack. That gesture said it all. The Beatles cheeked the establishment without seriously worrying them. This is the Edinburgh Reporter podcast, and today I'm with Robert Phillip. Robert, you've written um, a little book, but it's got a lot packed into it. It's called A Little History of Music. You probably know this already. You wrote the book. Um, but it covers a huge lot of uh, music and all different. So how did you start? Well, I mean, the first thing I did was to decide that I had to do this. Uh, because when I was a music student back in the 1960s, at, first at college, then university, uh, if you picked up a, a history of music, it would just be the history of Western classical music. There might be a, the occasional nod to other cultures, but basically that was all we learnt about. I learnt you know, classical instruments, played classical music. Um, of course, you know, on the, on the side we got interested in jazz and pop music as it developed, but, but we weren't trained in anything but classical music, uh, and we weren't trained to know about other music. Now, it seems to me now, when there's this whole situation we are now in where we're questioning all our past, our relationship with other cultures, uh, all the issues of uh, slavery, colonization, all that stuff. You can't, I think, call a book a, a little history of music and just write about Western music, let alone just about Western classical music. So I decided to try and do everything, uh, which is ridiculous in a tiny book like this, but I thought I'd try. Well, it's less than 200. No, sorry, it's not less than 200 pages. It's just less than 300 pages. And yes, I mean, you've got everything in here from the Beatles to Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. You've got some Italian opera. So how is it organized? Because um, even, even the chapter headings um, are not totally and utterly descriptive for me of exactly what I'm going to find in each chapter so um how did you you know how how did you think of it being organized in your head before you wrote it well i uh, i i, I tried to start at the beginning basically <laughs> in the womb <laughs> with uh, you know the sound of our mother's heartbeat our sound of our mother's breathing these two you know rising and falling getting yeah. uh, that's why uh, they have these devices nowadays for babies isn't it um, emit some sound. Or yes, anything. yes. But I mean, because of, we're exposed to that for, for months, uh, it's hardly surprising that we're born with, most people born with some sort of sense of rhythm. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, the way, the way mothers and others 
talk to their babies in an exaggerated baby. Well, there's a clever boy. Where's <laughs> Granny? Oh, dear. I mean, this baby talk, it's not just a sort of Western thing. Uh, all cultures in the world, uh, pretty much, have some sort of version of this. seems natural to sort of sing to your baby. and the it's baby almost musical, isn't well, it? Well, exactly. And the yeah. baby instinctively understands something. They don't understand the words, of course. But, but this intonation and, and the sort of emotion behind it, the baby responds to. So that, those origins of rhythm and melody and singing seem to me two basic things that one can start with. And then, I mean, you have really gone back to uh, the very beginning. Yes, yes. Neanderthal. Uh, yes, right, the earliest possible... Uh, evidence for early music making of course there isn't evidence for for the earliest music making nothing survives but you do get very early uh, cave paintings of people dancing clapping and astonishingly ancient instruments um, sort of bone flutes uh, there's some from Germany was it 40,000 years old or something like that I always forget numbers something like that and then um, a bit later there are uh, lots of bone flutes from China, which are still playable, and so you can get an idea of the sort of scales that they they were were using and so on on these these instruments. So I start with very ancient uh, music making, and then having covered a bit of that, I then try to go through the major cultures, musical cultures of the world, before getting onto the European familiar. Western things. Yeah, we uh, all think it be, it begins and ends here, don't yes, we? That this yes. is the centre of the earth, but of yes. course it's not. Um, and you've got some gongs in there from China as yes. well. Things yes, like that. I mean those were the, 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 was it something like two thousand BC that you had tuned gong sets of of, of many gongs. Um, and, uh, of course, this has become a great tradition, uh, as it remains to this day in Southeast Asia, things like the gamelan orchestras of Java and, uh, and Bali, with these gongs and, and um, xylophones and metal, metallophones and so on. Um, so picking up from there, um, it, from somebody like me who doesn't know half as... Well, I don't even know an nth of what you know about music, Robert. I wouldn't claim to know anything. Um, it seems that the church, though, has quite an influence on music, and you have touched on that too uh, in the book about the chanting and well, is that Gregorian chant. So you've really managed to encompass a, a huge amount mm, mm, um, mm. in here. But is the church responsible for a lot of our music, do you think? Well, it certainly is very, very influential. I mean, as soon as Christianity got going and spread to Europe, um, one of the things that would happen, well, and Christianity obviously based, based in the Jewish faith and Jewish chanting would have been what Christ and his disciples would have known. Um, but as soon as the church, uh, the Christian church became established as a separate thing, they wished to sort of separate themselves from this Jewish tradition more and more. And one of the ways they did this was to establish their own way of chanting. Um, and one of the interesting things is that um, as soon as the church became a sort of established, um, well, as soon as it became an establishment with, with its hierarchies and so on, it wanted to control the way people did things in all sorts of ways, and they wished to control how people chanted. And uh, the Pope in Rome would send out emissaries to different countries to teach them how to chant in the Roman way. 
Now, if you imagine trying to do this in the days before music was written down, before any notation, it's an impossible task because See, it they relies... had to they had to hold it in their head. Exactly, almost. exactly. There I wasn't can, can't do that. No, no. <laughs> but as you can imagine, you can't have a fixed chance um, if it's just a memory and and everything is by yeah. ear. Yeah. But then, uh, in around was it the ninth, tenth centuries, you get notation developing in sophisticated ways. So, so, not a, so the pitches are determined, and at this point, then you can have fixed chants, and these uh, these chants were were circulated in these written this written form, and this was the way you're supposed to do it, and that's why we've got these repertoire uh, this repertoire of Gregorian chants that uh, persists to this day. So that then then people could of course copy or um, learn, I suppose the uh, that kind of music. That's, uh, it is quite fascinating. You must have covered, I mean, from your, your own studies in the past, you must have covered an awful lot of this to already know. Presumably some of this book was already within your ken, as it were. Well, the sort then, of classical music bit, uh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And then, and then um, what about the research? Because you were writing this during lockdown, mm, so was mm. all your research then done online? Uh, well, yes, I, I, I have a secret to reveal, which is that we all have tens of thousands of research assistants, ah. uh, and they are online. Um, now, of course, the internet is a very dangerous place. There's lots of rubbish. There's lots of stuff that looks authoritative because you see it stated dozens of times in different sites, but very often this just derives from one source and it can be wrong. So you have to check all the time. Uh, but online, the, there are available scholarly articles. Uh, I mean, one source I found tremendously useful for getting a grip on what people talk about in music history now, uh, particularly in you know, different cultures and in pop music, all these areas I didn't know that much about. Uh, one source is, is conference papers. You get abstracts of conference papers of ethnomusicologists, musicologists of all sorts. Uh, and you can very quickly get an idea of what people are talking about, what are the current research topics, uh, what are the views about how people talk about different aspects of music history. So actually being locked down and having a book to write was really no hardship for you? Well, it, I, I, I felt very, very privileged because I, I was asked to put in a proposal for this book six months before the last lockdown before the first lockdown and uh, so by the time we were locked down I was actually working on the book knowing that I was going to write it. So. And what's your what's your own uh, uh, your own process then for writing I mean do you just write every morning or uh, you know every, every author it seems to me has a different mm. way of working some of them are up all night and mm. uh, I used to write all night when I was a student many years ago I used to write I'd leave everything to the last minute and you know, cl <laughs> classic student misbehavior uh, and you know, right through the night, and then go to my supervision, bleary-eyed in the morning. Uh, I can't do that anymore. Uh, no, the morning is my time, um, and then I don't get up fantastically early. But usually by sort of you know, nine o'clock or so, I'm, I'm at my computer. If I can do a, do a couple of good hours before coffee, then uh, then that usually is actually much more productive than anything later in the day. I think everybody's got a time like yeah. that when they're the most productive of the day. Yes. And who is the book for? Who, would, who is going to buy your book? Well, it's, it's in this series of little histories of Yale University Press, and, and the whole series is aimed at young people and people who know little or nothing about the subject. So I mean, it's aimed at me then, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, the, uh, um, uh, the original book, the, the 
Ernst Gombrich's Little History of the World was written for, I think, an, a 17-year-old. Um, uh, and he wrote it when he was, he was a research student in some incredibly short time, back in the 1930s. Uh, and that was, that was the model on which the series was based, with its 40 little chapters of 2,000 words each. And so it's, it's meant to be really accessible to everybody. Good. And, and how long did it take you? To write it. Uh, to take the whole well, from thing? from start to finish, three years. Gosh, so that seems a huge amount of time, really, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. To spend on one thing. Yeah. And and what about you? Do you do you play uh, music as well? And I know your wife does. But, yes, uh, yes, my wife, play... concert pianist Susan uh-huh. Thames. She's she's the real musician of the family. <laughs> yes, I I do play. Uh, not I don't. I've never played um, professionally, but uh, uh, I did go to music college, studied the organ, bassoon, piano. Uh, now piano is 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 what that's I play okay. from time to time. Yes. Good. Yeah. You don't have somebody looking over your shoulder saying that's not quite right. No, no, no. Well, <laughs> uh, of course Susan can, but she's very kind. Uh, allows me to play piano duets with her. So. That's great. And when is your book coming out? It's coming out uh, April the eleventh. Is the publication date? Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, wish you well with this latest book. And uh, you're working on something else already? Well, I'm thinking, uh, as you can imagine, I've got a huge amount of material that I couldn't cram into the book. So I'm trying to sort of, uh, I'm trying to work up a, an idea for a book on, on what you might call the um, themes of music, how music is made, making music, not historical, but, but just thinking about all the different ways in which people make music and what the implications are and how it all so works. you could come bang up to date with that and well, go for uh, DJs and people like that. Well, you're making music. Probably, yes. yes making yes. music with other people's yeah. music. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be fascinating. Thank you very much indeed for being our guest. Thank you, Phyllis. yes, if you didn't guess already, then it was indeed concert pianist Susan Tomes, who sat down at the piano and without even warming up, managed to play us such beautiful music. Thank you, Susan.